Good morning, St. John's Church. Good morning. Or as we would say in Ireland, Aguina Ushla Gomanigi Yiv, which which translated directly just means, dear noble people, may God bless you. And that's how you would address a group of people, Gomanigi Yiv. And on a day today, like today, you might also follow that by saying, soft day, thank God. So delighted to see all of you here. It's a perfect morning to hear three acclaimed Irish poets explore with us how nature poetry helps to pay us to pay attention to the world around us, and particularly to our precious environment. Our good neighbor in the White House, uh, President Joe Biden, quotes Irish poets so often that he says this before he quotes them. They think I do it because I'm Irish. That's not the reason. I do it because of the best poets in the world. <laughs> and I'm not one bit biased or anything, but in all fairness, it has to be said, he's completely right. <laughs> just delighted, uh, I want to call out one particular little privilege, just to say that we are so happy to have Dr. Angelina Arrington, the new head of school at Bishop Walker School, join us this morning. <laughs> And I'm certain we're going to be seeing Dr. Arrington here often, I hope. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Katie Donovan, Catherine Phil McCarthy, and my sister Jane Clark. They are in the US to give a series of readings supported by Culture Ireland. Altogether, they have published 13 collections, and they are three of the most highly regarded poets writing in Ireland today. So I will hand it over to you three. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew, and many thanks to yourself, to Chip, and to Bertha for your hospitality. And thank you. All right, more voluble thanks again. <laughs> thank you to Andrew, and thank you to Chip and Bertha for your wonderful hospitality. And thank you to the congregation here for having us to read for you this morning, particularly Re Reverend Fisher and Clark Irwin for organizing this beautiful room. Uh, so we're thrilled to be here to uh, read you poems about the wonders and realities of our threatened natural world. So I'm going to start. Hello, you're very welcome. Have a seat. Is there someone to, somewhere to sit? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you. So yes, I'm Katie Donovan, and I'm going to start um, with a poem called Dip because I happen to be a huge fan of swimming in the sea. Well, swimming anywhere, really. But I'm lucky enough to live near a lovely beach and to be able to walk there and swim for most of the year, even if, I'm sure by your standards, it's freezing cold. <laughs> um, it's, it's a wonderful ritual for me to have that immersion in the natural world. Dip. Scuff down sandy steps, arches, Stipple and sink on crunchy, damp stones, shell rims. Toes, naked pink, lead the wade. Skin gasping, going down into grey-green thick of salt. Shiver of wave tip on thigh, belly, breast. Up to the chin, hair ends ribboning. White arms marked with the cling of magenta fronds. Eyes rove to whale hump of mountain, pink and yellow of shore blossom, 
the island goldening up out of the Mirabal Bay. My play body needs no virtual reality, only this late summer dip in the sea. So I, a long time ago, I grew up on a farm in rural County Wexford and felt very close to nature as a sort of formative experience. And there were cows and I saw my mother milking by hand and making the butter, the butter pats. Um, but that's a very long time ago. And so I was lucky enough to be able to have children quite late on. Um, and I had a beautiful daughter. And before she was even two years old, she was also adoring animals and adoring being out in, in nature and looking up at cherry blossoms with wide eyes. So I was able to almost have that all again. So this is a poem called Cows, very unimaginative title, but it's just all about, <laughs> it's all about her delight in seeing cows, really seeing them for the first time. She wasn't even two years old, she could barely say anything. But to her, these were miracles. And thanks to Jane, she's going to put this in an anthology of nature poetry coming out. Is it at the end of the year, Jane? In November. In November. This is for my daughter, Phoebe. Cows. She has fallen in love with cows. Their huge, mild bodies that chew and stare. The way they stand with lowered, curious heads beside their fuzzy young. Or lie, lazing on their haunches in the sun. She makes her way on tiny legs, close as she dares. She points her little fist, lowing luxuriantly with pursed lips, moo, <laughs> then waits for them to say it too. She can spot them fields away, forms of rust or black and white. Just seeing them is immense joy, guaranteed. Visual satiation, the answering of a patent need. The creatures barely heed their worshipper, small, bold witness of their horned beauty. They sway, munching and blowing, twitching and lifting their tails to emit fascinating streams of stink. <laughs> when the summer heat cools to evening, they lose their torpor, and out of the curvaceous caverns of their grass-filled bellies come bellows and roars, leaving her aghast and thrilled. They bowl for the farmer and his cheeky dog to take them in, relieve the swollen lactic sacs of their creamy load. After milking, she ignores the sunset's pinkening shawl to rush for one last look, her hands pulling up on the low stone wall. The languid hulks like statues in the trodden grass remain insensible to her urgent bedtime call to her radiant bliss, that they are there at all. So growing up on a farm where we had our own small local church, an Anglican church, where my father would play the organ badly and sing too loud. <laughs> um, um, and that's, I suppose around this time of the year, we had our harvest festival. The church would be full of sheaves of corn and baskets of apples, and there would be the sense of thanksgiving. But early on, I suppose, I began to see that sometimes it wasn't so easy for these farmers because the harvest might have been a poor one. And yet there they were still in the church. 
Um, and sometimes there were farm accidents, and it still happens today. Tragic things can happen on a farm. So I suppose this is part of the wonders and the realities of the natural world. Um, it doesn't always go so well. Harvest. A flung stick and the children stomp on green gourds in the long-stemmed grass, scrabbling out conkers, squatting with their hoard in the briars, fingers pith-sticky and blackberryish. In the field, mother stoops to cut wheat, white-eared and yellow-throated sheaves to garnish the waiting church. Late evening, the men rattle to town with trailers of grain, wind on their knuckles. If the dry holds up, dusty caps are scratched. If the bank holds off, wallets in shiny pockets rub empty lips together. Magpies dart at yellow stubble and the church bell. Tongues a warning. They stiffen, remembering a neighbor tinkering with his baler, his small sons leaping at the wheel, nudging the engine to wake and bite. One, one child ran to drown his heartbeats crouching in the ditch. The other hollered home, but there was time only for dying. Father's blunt hands plucking at breaths, dry leaves hissing in the graveyard. The men close, memories shutter and tramp to flickering kitchens. Evening sucks the last light. Dogs yelp at cars in a hysteria which no one checks. Tomorrow they will sing. All is safely gathered in. And so other conundrums of our relationship with the natural world. Um, and sometimes poetry can only touch on these complexities. It certainly helps me to, to kind of make sense of some of what is going on. And I realized when I became a mother quite late, having been always rushing off to the office, now I was at home and there was a lot of washing to do, a lot of cleaning. Um, and I thought, well, lucky me, I've got a tap and some hot water. There's a lot of women in the world who haven't got that, who have to walk to wells and carry dirty water on, in a bucket on their head, miles and miles back to the house. And then I thought, well, I'd love if every woman had a tap she could turn on. And then I thought, well, what would that do to us? So it's a very difficult um, conundrum, is all I'll say. What my hands touch. Every day, drool, excrement, nose snorts and spurts of sick. The vast gushing of water needed to clean up, wondering how the women cope who have no tap. Every day, baby skin, cat fur, stale bedding, rumpled hair, the vast gushing of water needed to clean up, wondering how the women cope who have no tap. Every day, my own brittling skin, veiny legs, nails that grow too long, the vast gushing of water needed to clean up, wondering how the women cope, who have no tap. Every day, crinkle of old leaves, clouts of earth, errant roots and weeds, the vast gushing of water needed to clean up, wondering how the women cope who have no tap. Every day, greasy plates and bowls, tacky floors and toilet smells, the vast gushing of water needed to clean up wondering how the women cope who have no tap, wondering how the world would turn if all those women could turn the water on just as easily as I do. 
Only the desert would be left, a clean, lifeless vista of endless grains of polished sand. So although um, I was lucky enough to be able to have children, kind of at the last minute, um, my husband became ill quite soon after our second child was born. And I became a widow when my second child was six. And it was a very difficult time, as you can imagine. But again, the natural world was there for me. And this poem is about facing in to an October, having been made a widow, and just getting on somehow, and being inspired by a spider who had woven her web on my car. I love spiders. I know they get a bad rap. <laughs> and I think this is my last poem, isn't it? Yeah, okay, because I want to stay within the time. I know there's another service. <laughs> there's another service and two more fabulous, I'm just the warmer fact here, two more <laughs> fabulous poets to come. So I'm going to finish with this, and it's short. October. Each morning, the web is fanned with dew, the circlets shining. Flies are not so plentiful, but somehow the spinner, artful, patient, is thriving. Splayed across my wing mirror, her trap is slung. By day she hides in a crack, kept back by the speed of the moving car. Pouched and buffeted, her perfect filigree eventually frays, no use for netting food. But each night she pulls from her unfed body, fresh gossamer, wheeled and laced by her exact crawl, scuttle and measure, spreading her canopy delicate and braced. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here and thanks to everybody involved. I was raised a Catholic and when my son was four years old and I, he was getting ready for communion, I brought him to church and he said to me, I said to him, we have to be quiet now. And he said, why? And I said, because it's God's house. And he immediately said, where is he? Can I see him? And it was exactly that feeling I had on the way home from school. And my neighbors, Mrs. Scales, who care to Kilpeacon Chapel, allowed us to go inside. And her brother, Jim Reed, was the man who taught my father to drive. So this is talking to God in a Protestant church. <laughs> I did wonder whether his presence would be more radiant. We stole inside once, school bags dropped by the baptismal font. Stone walls, flag floor, no colored mosaic in symmetries of lambs or doves or paradise lost. 
no incense smells, statues of the saints, or Virgin Mary in a blue robe, standing on the globe, one bare foot on a snake's head, no stations of the cross, but crests to major or colonel who died in Gallipoli or Dunkirk, pews with high wooden backs, velvet cushions for knees, brass names adorning each row. We climbed in at Lady Jane Harrington, married twice. God didn't mind, Father said. We, we'd seen her on the horse. Our pulses raced as we took a seat and bowed our heads, wondering which husband came to church. <laughs> Beyond the pulpit, found instead faded regimental flags, a vase of dried grass, and radiant daylight streaming in through clear glass. My collection, The Invisible Threshold, um, has the image on the cover of a flooded river. And it's a painting by the Irish artist Bernadette Kiley, who lives down in Thomastown along the River Nore. And the title Threshold, Threshold is a space a moment between two worlds. And there are several thresholds in the collection. The moment of falling in love, or becoming a parent for the first time, or the moment between life and death. In that collection, the sense of climate change reaching a threshold is an important strand. And since I came to Washington, we've had a lot of weather. <laughs> this is forecast. The Irish poet Derek Mahan has a line in a poem, a future forbidden to no one. This afternoon, I wish you were still here to see from our study window how the dark lavender maelstrom of cloud loading the skies over Dublin is shot with light, so that whatever appeared threatening in it an hour ago, widespread flash floods across the city, even hailstones, has settled into something less than weather, more shy of attention, a painter's slate lit with burnt umber and old rose, densities lifted and electrified now across the whole dimension of air with untold possibilities. I went in 2011 to a place called Skocin in Slovenia and I was taking part in a translation workshop and Skocin is about 18 miles from the city of Trieste 
And the river Reka there runs overland and then because it's a limestone karst region like the burn in County Clare, it, ru it runs underground. There are lots of caves and uh, the limestone region, it's porous. There had been an enormous flood in the year before and the director of the workshop took us on a walk and this is Scotian journey. Across the bleached stepping stones, river down to a soundless trickle, lazy pools, lukewarm in the shade. We speak of the rains that flooded the canyon last summer, trace the high water mark by driftwood sticks high above our heads, a tangle in branches of a linden like the nest of some great bird eagle or peregrine we've seen riding the thermals in pairs above the cliffs four skyward circling into asia further than the eye could see or maybe a crane last glimpsed with fox in the fresco of a tiny church black the magnesium line stains limestone walls way up so that even now a tumult rages and we are treading the Reka riverbed, hands loosening our boots while we float free, water sprites in the chasm of a deep rush, our hair standing on end amidst a melee of drowned debris, branches of morello and plum Berries of wild fruit, stalks of flowering cyclamen, lizard, snake, and wolf, all swept past the gorge mouth, down and down through ancient caves, where only this river flows, coursing into the underworld. This, each poem that I'm reading reflects in a different way on the moment that we're in, our sense of being in the world. And when I say we, I'm thinking of the interconnectedness of plant, animal, bird, human, sky, air, smoke, river, sea all of life as we know it. And the Greek word oikis is the derivation of echo, eco, eco-friendly. And it means house, it means home. And I think all across the world, people are beginning to be aware of the profound threat to humanity. And I was sitting in my kitchen one day and my friend who's a scientist said to me, so what if the human race is wiped out? The earth will do absolutely fine. It might even be better. And I was so very shocked because to me, 
The earth is human. This is night sky. Paint at night. Those stars in a frosty sky, one brighter than another. Sirius, Orion, Great Bear, accustom eyes to deepest pitch that delivers the Milky Way. The more it's scanned, this sprawl grows fathomless. Too late to catch low in the south, <coughs> as if the sound made walking the lane just now frightened it away, a star falling. And seconds later, another lit trajectory, scorching headlong over the western rim. Yet, up above, the heavens are crammed with constellations, like so many freckles jostling for place. Could it be sometime we are not there, gone? Without trace, planet Earth, an empty house. As the face of night prevails, unforeseen and certain from the beginning, as only death is. Thank you for listening. It's been a great joy to read here. Thank you. everybody it's I'm my name is Jane Clark I'm absolutely delighted to be back here there's a sense of coming home uh, I've read here a number of times before and it's wonderful to read with my two friends today uh, very special um, we took as our theme today wonders and realities um, inspired by Rachel Carson's book which I'm sure many of you know Silent Spring and that book came out the year after I was born I was born in 1961 it, and we still haven't really taken on what Rachel said to us back then and one of the things she was a scientist but she looked to the arts to help her communicate what she needed us to know. And lots of the uh, environmental activists, lots of the scientists today say to us, poets and writers, help us communicate what we need to communicate. And I was thinking that we were talking about what as our training as poets is to pay attention to all the little things, the ordinary things. And that's the training for an ecologist as well. Um, but also what we try to do as poets is say what can otherwise seem unsayable. If, if it could be said in another way, you can have an article in a newspaper about it. But we're trying to get at what seems inexpressible. And I think you've heard that lots already this morning from both Katie and Phil. Um, so um, one of the things uh, Phil, Catherine Phil said is she said, um, the earth is human. And I was thinking, but humans are earth. And it led me to remember a poem um, that was inspired by my mother. 
and um, the, the poem Queens, it's called Butter for Queens, but just to say Queens are a particular type of potato that are very popular in Ireland. <laughs> Butter for Queens. My mother craves new potatoes, dripping with butter, sprinkled with salt. They taste of the earth, she says, and remind her of corncrake mornings, cracks, 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 cracks from the fields. She'd skim the cream, let it sit on the sill to ripen, hold the jug high and pour, then turn and turn to a rhythm unhurried as milking till the butter balls clustered, floating yellow as freshly dug queens. In her days of gathering dusk, she clasps them under the pump, rinses till the water runs clean. So this morning is about celebration. It's also about loss. And I think when we look at, when we're aware of the environment now, we live between love and loss. Um, but we are also living with restoration. So I want to read two po poems of restoration. Um, the first uh, of environmental restoration. Uh, during lockdown, I had uh, the pleasure of doing a writing retreat on an island off the west coast of Ireland, Ackle Island. And there I met a fisherman who had been involved in the basking shark fisheries on the island, which led to the extinction of basking sharks off the coast of Ireland, even though we had 20% of the world population for a very small island, that was a lot. And basking sharks are you know, they're the second largest fish in the world, and they're absolutely gentle. All they eat is plankton. But anyway, we did a good job of trying to wipe them out. But then they stopped the fishery, and they have returned. So this poem came from talking to the old man who, re who remembered their loss and, remem and has seen them return. At Perching Harbour, basking sharks, docile as seal pups, harpooned and netted from currucks, were towed one by one to the fishery at the slipway. Fathers and sons sliced off dorsal fins and hacked through blubber to reach oil-filled livers. Sweating in burnhouse heat, they shoveled bleeding flesh into the rendering machine. They couldn't wash the smell from their skin, not if they swam to Inish Galvan at the end of every shift. Year by year, the catch diminished, disappeared. But late last April, old men cheered from the headland and said, it's as if we've been forgiven. A school of twelve cruised into Keen Bay, moon tail swishing, fins proud as yawl sails above the waves. And another poem of restoration, and the poems of restoration are important. We need hope and we need courage. We need to know that we can still make a difference. 
Um, and this one is a, a neighbour of mine is involved in Wicklow National Park and he's uh, involved in a restoration project, restoring the bogs. And just to say, you know, we used to criticise what was happening in the Amazon until we in Ireland realised our bogs are our Amazon and they sequester carbon more than a forest. And, and we had been wiping them out uh, at speed, but now we're trying to restore them. And so uh, this one is um, uh, inspired by some of the work in County Wicklow, where I live. Recipe for a bog. Block the gullies and grips where the river rises. Slow the downhill flow of peat-filled streams. Fell spruce and pine that thirst for moisture, mulch parched earth with heather brash, graft sphagnum moss from a healthy bank, lace straw, feather light on fragments, welcome rain, gaze at puddles spreading into ponds, count frogs, watch emperor moths in cotton grass. A spider trapped on sundew tendrils. Dragonflies skittish from butterwort to asphodel. And a pair of low-flying merlin. Wingbeat, wingbeat, glide. Um, so, uh, I, I wrote, for this book, I wrote a series of poems about the border, the, which par, is the partitioning Ireland. And one of the things about the border is you see, when you get to know it, you see all the different ways people have tried to cross it. And for me, that says how much we need to connect with each other as people. We, all these governments, we keep trying to put borders between people, and people find ways across those borders. But I also, somebody also said to me that the poem for them signified the ways we can find solutions to our problems, the manifold ways that are there, which is what we need, of course, more than ever at the moment. So, um, crossings. <coughs> A gap in a hawthorn hedge, stepping stones in a stream, an oak log slick with frost, a three-arch masonry bridge, a cow path down to a river where boulders span the width, a space between two barbed wire strands, a five-bar gate, a by-road, a railway line, a deer run, a coffin path, a stile in a dry stone wall, a pass between two peaks, a rowboat on a lake, a bramble-laced bridle path, a firebreak through conifers, a granite lintled sheep creep, a butter path, a footbridge over a burn, two breeze blocks and a plank, Railway sleepers laid in a bog. Okay, so one, one last poem. Um, just get it ready. Uh, 
And, and before I read the last poem, I, I want to say thank you again. I want to say thank you to Clark. I want to say thank you to Rob for his welcome again. Uh, uh, to Andrew and Chip, of course, for their hospitality and welcome. But just to all of you for coming along this morning. It's, uh, again, as we said, it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, this poem was written during lockdown. I was asked to write it um, in a way to give hope. And it was broadcast on our, our television uh, station. But the idea was during the really hard times, and they asked, could I write something that in some way would give people hope? And there's the, uh, little terns are these amazing birds that travel you know, the, the length of the, of, of the world uh, in their, in their um, migration every year. And they're protected on a, on a beach in Wicklow. And the, the eggs that they lay are protected from dogs and walkers. So volunteers, you know, put up net and protect them. And it seems something that seemed very appropriate for, again, the whole theme of restoration and what we can do to help things, the precious things in our world survive. So I'll finish with this and thank you. Little Turn Colony, Kilkool. In shallow nests among pebbles, most of the eggs survived the high tides. August slips into September. Fledglings, light as whelk shells, get ready to fly. The sun and stars will guide them. And though they'll be hungry, thirsty, cold, the Earth's magnetic field will pulse in their hearts like hope. Thank you very much. So our three wonderful poets are going to stay for some uh, questions. If you, uh, if we, we have about five minutes for that. And then afterwards, they're going to sign books. And anybody who'd like to purchase them are welcome to do that. And they'll be here for those of us who are at the 9 o'clock service or just stay on and have a chat. So um, please, your questions. John. Hey. <laughs> it was wonderful hearing you all. Uh, it was it's, it's great. I, I want to know, do, do any of you write haikus? I wouldn't have the discipline. <laughs> 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 or the brevity, I always overwrite. Okay. What about you? Um, I like form, and so music, the line, the line turning. Um, to keep it to 17 syllables can be tricky, but, <laughs> but I like that. I like form in general, okay. and haiku is part of that. Any other? All three of you became poets of note. What was that turning point in your life where you saw that this could be your life's work? Well, I'll, I'll answer that first, yes. and then <laughs> because I'm, I came to it late. Uh, I, only, I wrote my first poem when I was 44. And, and I'm 62 now, and I sort of, it was like falling in love, and I've just worked like mad at it since. But it was, it was by chance, sometimes I think maybe I would have missed it. But I always wanted to write, 
always. But it was something about, you know, the 40 often that midpoint in life where you sort of think, well, now what? It's a, it's a good time, that kind of questioning. And that's, that's what happened for me. And then I just worked very hard. But both of my friends here would have uh, inspired me because they were, they were along the road a good bit when I came into it. But I, you know, well, Jane and I were students at Trinity College Dublin long time ago and she did study English so I think <laughs> I think that it was there all along <laughs> um, but yeah I would have been writing little ditties when I was about seven or eight and little short stories but then when I was 16 my first adult poem came because a boy in my class died suddenly you know when you're 16 you think you'll live forever and this boy, unbeknownst to the rest of us, had a rare blood condition, which meant that his life was going to be short. But his parents didn't want his fellow students to know. They didn't want us treating him differently. But to me, that was the shock. And, and our great um, poet, William Butler Yeats, said the big themes of poetry are love and death. And it's true that all of my poetry revolves around that, the, the loss, um, the celebration. Um, the exploration of all the nuance, uh, but it was the shock of his death that really moved me to begin to write age 16. But it wasn't until I was nearly 30 that I got the sense that actually I could uh, have a book and that somebody would want to publish it. So it was a long journey, needed a lot of patience, a lot of circling and rewriting and trying to believe in myself. I think I relate to both of the answers here. Um, I, I grew up in, in a busy house, uh, four children in our house, four in the house next door, and we went back and forth, and there were two parents in each and, two grand, and a grandparent on either side. And because it was a farm, it, it was very, it was in, industrious. So I think idleness was probably the very worst sin. And I, I was very often found under a bed reading a book <laughs> and uh, so loved books and it was something that was there it was valuing inwardness um, writing comes from an inner life I was in central in London studying drama and invited to write and I thought they think I can write because I'm Irish <laughs> and I went back home, you know, to the country of W.B. Yeats and Samuel Beckett and Seamus Heaney, and I thought, what am I doing here? Um, but sending work out, and I think it's Michael Longley has said that one can't call oneself a poet. One has to be recognized as such. And I thank you for the invitation to read here and for the recognition of that. So. Thank you. Is there another question here? One more? I think we have to finish. I think we have to finish. Where do you get the inspiration to write your poems? Where does it Oh, that's a long, long I can say it in one yeah, word. In it's one a word. shock or a surprise, and I don't really know how I feel until I begin to write. And then that's many years answer. later, when I'm looking at the poem that I ended up writing, I'm like, okay, that's how I really felt. Mm -hmm. so, wow. Thank you. Thank you.